Are you going to say that or am I going to say that? Well, this is winging. <laughs> it's the new hunter. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Do Strings Pod. This is a psychology show where we talk about different types of psychology research, how it relates to clinical practice. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm joined by Amy Donaldson. Hello. Hello. How are you tonight? I am all right. How are you? I'm enjoying my peppermint tea. I've gone peppermint tea tonight. Mm, not a fan. Not a fan. But I'll let you do your thing. It's too late for a cup of tea. No. It's never too late for a cup of tea. Anyway, uh, <laughs> on the pod today or tonight, we are going to be talking about treatment of anxiety. In particular, we're going to be talking about treatment of anxiety with kids and different treatment approaches that you or that you can use or that people do use and have some discussion around that. So before we jump into some articles, I was thinking it might be useful to chat a little bit about anxiety in childhood and how it's different from adulthood. Uh, I think that a lot of adults kind of think that if they see a child who's anxious, it'll look a bit like it does for an adult. You know, you can kind of tell when someone in your life is anxious that they're sort of... Um, you know, look kind of worried or stressed or that sort of thing. And we kind of have a whole bunch of ideas about what anxiety looks like. Uh, but in children, that can be quite different. So for kids, they can just feel anxious. I'm, I'm doing air quotes, which doesn't help on this thing, but uh, they can have that kind of general unsettled feeling. They can have worries about the future, about you know, what's going to happen about something bad happening, those kind of things. But they're far more likely to have a whole bunch of symptoms that might not necessarily look like anxiety. So things like physical symptoms. So stomach aches and headaches are really mm. common. So we call that spanatization. Exactly. So lots of sleep difficulties, going off food, issues with uh, attachment so doing things like all of a sudden becoming really clingy or completely disinterested in yeah, the their attachment calling, figures. Yeah. yeah. And they can also have regression in their development. So they can go from, you know, using full sentences to just using a word or two. Or yeah, or like maybe sort of previously where they were toileting all by themselves. Then yeah. they're like, something like, Daddy, I need you to wipe my bottom, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So there's far more of those symptoms that perhaps... Um, we wouldn't interpret as anxiety. Um, and I think there's, there's a fair amount of misdiagnosis or people thinking that uh, it's another issue other than anxiety. Yeah, and I'm, the way I often view it is that, that some of those behaviours draw the parent closer to the child. Exactly. You know, so that there's, there's kind of this uh, homeostatic function, would that be the correct yeah. word? I'm not sure, like where it, the behaviour kind of, the child naturally does this thing and the and the payoff really is actually to get more attention or get more closeness. Yeah, sort or of comfort or kind of, like the way I would classify this as this somaticization, so this body stuff, yeah. this behavioral difficulty. So that's acting in a different way. So that could be 
more, more shy, more yeah. aggressive, um, more clingy. Yeah. More possessive is another one that kids often, like all of a sudden they don't want to share their toys. Yeah, or more rigid. Yeah, yeah. Like, and controlling. Things yeah. have to be done a certain way. Yeah. And this is to not just one day, but... Yeah, it's uh, not just being in a bad mood. It's it's a pervasive... Yeah, and that's where yeah. kind of having discussions with, uh, say, childcare workers or teachers and stuff like that can really... Really help. Help you identify it, if, if you're a clinician or even if you're just a parent. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, and then there's also a whole bunch of things that probably fit into sort of withdrawal, avoidance, that sort of thing. So stuff like refusing to go to school or hiding behaviours or avoiding talking to their friends, all of that kind of that kind of cluster of things that can also happen. Yeah. So that's yeah. sort of for an older child or adolescent. Yeah. Although little ones often will hide under furniture or things like that. Hide behind parents. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Uh, and then in terms of disorders, a lot of the disorders that happen in adulthood also happen in childhood, but there's, but they take into account that those symptoms might look a little bit differently. So, you know, that an anxiety disorder might present differently in children than in adults. Um, and then it also takes into account that there are sort of age-appropriate anxiety and phobias and things like that. There's kind of patterns found in all different cultures about different things that children are afraid of at different times points that mm. seem to sort of match developmentally where you're at. So like being afraid of darkness in age, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, also like um, being afraid of being separated from your parents and that kind of period where you're learning to explore the world separately on your own. Yeah. So sort of that preschool period. And then as your cognitive abilities develop more kind of like, you know, early to late childhood starting to fear abstract things like monsters Mm. or creatures or things like that because they can picture those things all of a sudden or like kind of like fearing heights or Mm. going to the pool and 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 not wanting to jump in this part or slide down that thing or do that kind of stuff yeah exactly so there's a normal sort of development of fears and of phobias and things but there's sort of a distinction when it reaches the point where it's sort of what we would term clinically significant. Yeah. Um, where it impairs how the child is functioning and just how anxious they are, the intensity of that. Yeah, or even I, I would, I think often when misdiagnosis comes up or is that, is when a, it's not actually the child being impaired, it's the family being impaired. Exactly, yeah. So the child's behaviour inadvertently or... In, whatever the opposite of inadvertently causes the family to suddenly have to do a whole lot of stuff. And so they they go, oh, no, the child's fine. Mm. But then you you have a discussion with them and it's like it's quite clear that this family's not functioning because of all the demands around one or two children. Yeah, that they're having to kind of create a world around their children that makes them then feel safe. That has all of these kind of conditions and things to yeah, it. Or, that's yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and that and that's that's not meant to sound judgmental. It's sort of sort of more trying to be descriptive about what's going on because I think parents quite rightly fall into that. Yeah, and I think it's adaptive. You kind of you don't want your children to be distressed, so you do what you can to kind of help them feel okay. Yeah, and then and then sometimes it can just it can end up running away for yeah. whatever reason, for lots of complicated reasons. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, so that's a bit of a, a picture of anxiety in childhood. There's also a couple of disorders that are more specific to childhood. So like separation anxiety tends to happen 
in children. So you get anxious about separating from a caregiver or selective mutism is another one that often happens more in childhood. Mm-hmm. So where children will refuse to speak in various locations. It's not usually across the board. It's, you know, won't speak at school or won't speak at home. Yeah, won't speak with unfamiliar adults, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the other part of it, just to touch on, is that uh, when you're working with this population is that often, especially for the younger ones, they don't have the vocabulary to describe what it is that's going on for them. They know that they don't feel great. They know that there's something wrong, but they might not necessarily be able to say, I feel anxious. Yeah. Yeah. Although I've got to say, working with adults, like, because that's they my often career, can't either. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you explain to somebody, you know what what you've got is anxiety, these sorts of worry thoughts. Sometimes you actually have to convince people. So mm. no, you're worried. This is a worry that you've got. Yeah. This is something that you're worried. Your concern's going to happen. You think it's going to happen. So I mean, I think I listen whenever I listen to you, yourself or other child psychs talk. I think the divide between adults and children in many cases... It's not that great. I don't... I, I, I think that you just don't see the, the extremes of behavioural mm. uh, stuff. You certainly see somatization. Yeah. Uh, people presenting with headaches, people presenting with all sort, uh, stomach aches, all sorts of body stuff. Oh, it's this, it's that, and the other. And then, and then once they start feeling a bit better because you've been doing some therapy there... Yeah. Oh, the body stuff's gone away. So maybe it's more sort of um, proportional which symptom is the primary one, the one that comes to the top or the one that they seek help for that's different. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, It could be. Hmm. Yeah. So did you have an article? I do have an article. Uh, If this is stilted in my presentation, it's because I hand wrote my notes and uh, it's a fair... (laughs) If you read my writing, I've got I'm left-handed, I'm male, and I'm and I'm a doctor. So it's like the fact that I could hold a pen at all uh, is is a bonus. So trying to read my writing is terrible. Many manager and English teacher try to change that fact. So the article I've got is from the Journal of Psychotherapy Integration, and it's called "Playful Exposure: An Integrative View on the Contributions of Exposure Therapy to Children with Anxiety." It's by Aura Wiseman Carroz and Mayan Shora, and it's published in 2017, so in April. So, and they're researchers or clinicians from Israel. So, this article is really, I don't think you'd call it a position paper. It's, it's not a research paper as such, in, certain, in that they didn't do a research. It's sort of more a synthesis of what they have been clearly doing in their clinics and what they've found that's worked and discuss this sort of clinical approach and re- relating that back to ther- uh, therapy experiences but and also clinical theory, okay, that kind of stuff. So they talk about, as Amy just mentioned, uh, anxiety in children. Children have behavioral inhibitions so this, when they're anxious, the tendency to restrict uh, exploration and avoid novelty. You know, they, they can be timid, they can cling to parents, particularly when sort of they're exposed to unfamiliar circumstances. You know, they're over rigid and lack playfulness yeah. in their actions or in their play. Mm-hmm. What we know from clinical work is that exposure is a very, very useful clinical tool to treat anxiety. So basically, it's just as it sounds, you expose someone to anxiety-provoking situations. Generally, you try and do that in a gradual and continuous way. Yeah. And that leads to decline in anxiety. So if you're anxious about something, 
you do a little bit of it and a little bit more of it and a little bit more of it and you get better at it. And, that and it can often be quite <coughs> um, slow, like a, quite a really baby step. So I'm, I guess I'm thinking of an example of like, you know, someone with a phobia of spiders yeah. of, you know, seeing a picture of a spider on the other side of the room mm. might actually be a couple of steps in. Yeah. Um, and like t- touching a photograph might yeah, be quite hard. Might be quite hard, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, depending on how difficult the circumstance yeah. is and the amount of resources someone's got, you can also do flooding, which mm. is the opposite, which is the person just exposes themselves to the to the actual fear circumstance or stimuli yeah. and just like doesn't one hit. So the classic example is like if you've got a lift phobia and you want to do flooding and get rid of this lift phobia, you uh, and a psychologist or uh, a willing psych nurse or someone go and stand at a lift for about six hours. Yeah. And so you don't leave when you get anxious. You just stick with it. it. Yeah. So, I mean, mean, I've had one client do that where she was anxious post a mastectomy Mm -hmm. and being, yeah, she was anxious about being seen. Yeah. And I talked to her and said, well, you can do gradual or the flooding way. Yeah. Suggesting maybe the, the, the gradual the way gradual. would be better. Yeah. She came back and she said, I did the flooding way. Okay. Was, she said, it was, it was difficult, but I got through it and it's done. I am said, do you need to see me again? She said, nope. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it was, it, was, it was absolutely fascinating. Because most people would choose the, a lot of people would choose the other. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it fits with, you know, it depends on what the goal is, how serious mm. it is, and also perhaps your personality style. So, yeah. anyway, I'm getting a little bit off topic. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, so we, we definitely know that exposure to is a very, very effective anxiety treatment strategy. In this article, they talk about recasting exposure as play because if, it apl- if exposure is applied rigidly, children can respond in kind of a technical kind of response or they can be quite reluctant. And so if you have it more, pla- more playful, it's, it's more vitalizing, it's, it's more rich yeah. in therapy. And also what they've found is that, you know, if therapy lacks exposure and, this, and a child is anxious, often there's little, little to no gain in terms mm-hmm. of anxiety symptoms. So it's, they, they advocate for this hybrid approach between exposure, exposure technique and play as a way of kind of getting good results. Just to get into some theory about exposure. So, so it's a core CBT process. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and gradual exposure is a core process within that so usually it's systematic and sustained process you identify situations actions a child avoids because of anxiety you list that then you have a structured sort of set of assignments to engage in those situations low level intensity first like we we're talking about before you repeat until and you repeat them until it's stabilized so you wouldn't yeah. necessarily just do it once you might just do it a couple you might do it a couple of times and and anxiety can be lowered even just with one exposure yeah absolutely the theory behind why this works is actually a couple of different things. I was quite interested to read about it. They said, well, it could just be habituation. So habituation is when the, the best way to think about it is like if you hear a tapping noise, like if you work in an office and there's like hammering going on outside constantly or a loud air conditioner, yeah, you don't hear it after a while because you just habituate to the stimulus and it just doesn't respond. And that's not a non-conscious process. Mm. Like, other theories around why exposure works is that at higher levels, it weakens the association between stimuli 
and their related behaviours and meanings so that weakening the association between stimulus and the negative response. Yeah. Right? So you kind of do something and it's uh, not scary and then you kind of weaken that association when previously it was. So like the, the spider phobia thing, you look at a spider, you touch the photograph of the spider, you realise there's actually there's no danger. You weaken the negative association. There's this other view that maybe it doesn't extinguish the negative, but it leads to competing associations so that that links the feared stimulus with safer uh, or comfort feelings. Yeah. So, which I think is quite plausible. Like, so if you think about like a going on a diving board, you'd still be a bit scared or it's, mm. it's actually kind of good to still have a bit of fear. Yeah, you don't forget that there's an element of risk to no, it. No, but you then also have this other risk element of, um, that this is going to be fun. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so the, and, and then by having that competing system going, that's, that reduces the anxiety. Yeah. Or you can have changes in the appraisal of danger. So like so you don't view it as dangerous and so that the, so you don't actually need, feel the need to avoid, right. And so you don't feel anxious, right. So there's challenges in, I mean, Amy could probably speak better, to, better to this than I can, but Challenges in treating children's anxiety and exposure requires motivation, tolerance for pain or insight, also tolerance for frustration. Yeah. Children, by their nature, are typically impulsive or more impulsive than adults. Limited insight, although many adults have limited insight, tendency to avoid what frightens them. And that makes it difficult to do something like therapist. And a therapist can also be sort of rigid in their manner and so that all those things can kind of mean that exposure and trying to do treatment of, of anxiety through that's probably can be difficult yeah I mean, is that what you would exp- you, yeah your and i because i think that the other element is that children are quite creative in avoiding what it is that they don't want to do so um you know whereas with a adult client they might kind of just put it off or things like that. You can often go in all different directions with a child client who will suddenly introduce new things or will go off and play or will um, hide behind furniture and refuse to talk to you or there are a whole bunch of different kind mm. of strategies that they sort of seem a little bit more willing to to try something left of centre to see whether that works. And so I think it's a, a constant balance of kind of helping them to understand why you might want them to do something and also a little bit of doing it together. So it's not just them doing it. The two of you are giving something a go together. That often helps. Yeah. 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 So in play therapy, they, they talk about that it's a well-known modality within kid, kids' treatment. Therapy room is secure. Kids are able to play out their thoughts and feelings that may be difficult to say or confront. Yeah. You can have symbolic actions that the therapist can then kind of reflect back. And, and this type of modality kind of gives self-efficacy and a sense of mastery. It's child-led and that reduces worry about failure or criticism. But also the problem with that is that it means that anxiety-provoking areas can be avoided. Uh, you know, and if time is of, of the essence, particularly with a child, when personality is forming, yeah, you don't... I would imagine that there's pressure to get the job done. Yeah treat the problem and it also requires a fair bit of planning i think um in terms of thinking about what materials or things you might need if you want to do play therapy kind of exposure things like if you think about the sort of 
um, general toys and things that are around the place. There might not necessarily be things that are that can be scary or can be anxiety provoking. So you kind of need to have a little bit of a you need to think a bit creatively about what different things could be used for or to make sure that in your batch of toys you have things like a dragon or, or a shark or something that can hmm. represent something yeah, scarier. Well, actually, one of the examples I use in this thing is dragons. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. exactly that. Yeah. So, I mean, and you don't typically find that stuff in an adult therapy room. No. Um, so those suggest, uh, you know, injecting play into exposure is kind of ideal because it gets a because exposure by its nature gets a child to respond in a non-rigid way. Yeah. Really. At first, exposure can feel artificial and forced, external motivation, a little playfulness, but then curiosity and interest can come in waves in between the waves of anxiety. Mm. And that's and that, that's when it can be expanded on. This is the way that they phrased it. Yeah. And if you think about that with a whole lot of stuff, that's often the way that we explore the world. You know, we kind of get anxious, but then there's moments where we won't have so much anxiety and that's when our interest in something kind of comes out. Yeah. So, so they give an example of a four-year-old with selective mutism, so wouldn't talk to the therapist, their teacher or unfamiliar adults. And so they played the grapevine telephone, which was this whispering words. You whisper words between people yeah. and the message gets corrupted and then becomes funny, right? Yeah. And this child never wanted to make a mistake. And so they whispered really, really quietly initially so that no one could hear so he would actually engage in it. And then once this, and they kept playing it, and once they, the, the mum was there and the mum would make mistakes, comical yeah. mistakes. And then, and then so the child started to laugh and then they started to do this more and then they would do this with it in, the, in every therapy session yeah. as a warm-up. And then they would... And then it became something that they would do at school. Yeah. And and so it, was, it sort of became a transitional object from therapy to school. Nice. As well. So it was a really kind of neat way of using play in mm. a kind of really logical kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, what I was talking about before, playful atmosphere creates new competing associations between the stressor and creates feeling enjoyment. Anxiety is incompatible with feeling enjoyment. So yeah. Yeah, so once you sort of start to get that sort of bit of an antidote in a way. So they reference psychodynamic theory in yeah. this article, which I don't know a huge amount about. They talk about that there's a difference between learning from someone or learning something and learning from experience. And learning from experience changes the learner. Yeah. And so and that's what really exposure is. You know, so anxious kids kids observe from a distance, it's non-experiential, it's controlled, whereas growth requires toleration for frustration and learning. And, you know, and that's when you learn about the world. And so that's really what you're trying to do in exposure therapy. It, it's a shift from avoidant rigid stance to sort of, you know, a stimulated and revived mode. Hmm. And they also talk about the symbolic manner in which things can be expressed during play and that therapy, you know, that there's this transitional space, so this intermediate zone of experience between your inner and outer world of fantasy and reality in play. And that that also kind of is mirrored within therapy as well. Mm. Like an exposure therapy is mirrors that, which is like, you know, it's not real world. Exposure and therapy is not the real world per se, but it's not imaginary yeah and then when you merge 
that world into reality, then things change, mm-hmm. right? So, and that, yeah, as I was saying before, the content of play may reflect experience of the child's inner world. They gave an example of an eight-year-old girl who'd had trauma from a car accident and she was afraid about crossing the road and so she would, and she ordered her therapist to cross the road in a particular way. Yeah. And then the therapist kind of started responding funny to that. Yeah. And and then one of the instructions that this child says, you know, you know, cross the road like an old lady. Um, and so the therapist did that. But they sort of reflect, well, maybe that was also that the child was expressing feeling vulnerable and yeah. helpless. And then through that, they kind of, you know, they started to muck around with it. And it's like, cross the road like you're marching in a parade. Yeah. You know, and things yeah. like that and sort of change it away and change the association. Uh, again, harking back to theory, they talk about they talk about therapy creating a shift from artificial omnipotent control to an adequate sense of mastery so that when you're avoidant, you've got this omnipotent control. You know, it's about the world. I'm putting my hands up for some reason. <laughs> but it's fictitious, right? Like, you know, you yeah. don't really actually have that control and that anxiety returns. Yeah. Like it, it, as soon it, as you realise you don't have that control. Yeah. Or like, or you have to maintain that control yeah. to not feel anxious. Yeah. So it's kind of like, a junkie getting a hit, yeah. right? It only lasts for so long. Whereas in therapy, you really want you want you want to develop a sense of mastery about the world, and exposure can help you do that because you develop have new experiences, and new skills that they can practice, and then after a while, that turns into a desire to master the world. Mm. Right. So I mean, so in the cancer realm, I had a patient who she, for a particular reason, was struggling to go back into shopping centres. Yeah, we kind of discovered this and then we said okay well let's you know well what you should what I want you to try and do is to go into a shop mm-hmm. for a, a certain amount of time yeah it's a small amount of time see if you can do it and then and then once that kind of once you try that a couple of times the the desire to actually master that kicked in mm. it's like you know this is what I really like because she really wanted to be able to do that yeah and so, so the importance of it trumped the anxiety about it. Yeah, but you kind of got to get people over the hump. Yeah, I think is. I mean, it, would that be the same with kids? I mean, yeah, yeah, no different. Yeah, no, no different. So they talk about Jung theorist, Jung or practitioner. Mm. Would you say both? Both. He's psychodynamic. I don't know much about him. It speaks to the cognitive behavioural way I was trained. <laughs> it talks about the process of playful exposure as being part of this inner inner journey of individuation. And that, that you get closer to less familiar feelings or parts of yourself when engaging in new experiences. And repeat exposure may assist in actualizing different aspects of a child's self. You know, you sort of integrate these aspects and that enhances self-awareness, develops growth and results in self-fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So some, some self-states are less accessible, disavowed or disassociated, but you need to be able to integrate them and, and integrating them is an important therapeutic task. So, I mean, I think about like anger. Many people don't like expressing anger for mm. whatever reason. and But allowing someone to be angry is quite a good thing because it means that they were healthier all over. So, they give an example of a of anxious five-year-old boy worried about making mistakes, school refusal, reluctant to go to school or wouldn't want to take part at school. And that they role played what happened in the classroom with toys. Yeah. The teacher was a dinosaur. 
Like he was a mouse. His friend, who was a naughty boy, was a rat. Yeah. And so the therapist, you know, role played the bossy teacher, and then he, as the mouse, didn't want to say anything, and the therapist encouraged him to be the rat. Yeah. Um, but he didn't want to do that either. So the therapist played the rat, and then. And then acted all naughty, which the kid thought was funny. Yeah. And then the next session, the kid acted, uh, tried being the rat. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the rat got naughtier and naughtier and funnier and funnier. And then his character, the mouse, became more assertive. Yeah. So this really kind of like as an adult therapist, I, I, I read that and I think, oh, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. As a process. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun being able to use puppets and toys and things like that to act out different intentions and things like that. It's quite enjoyable getting to pretend to be a squirrel or <laughs> whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting how, like, it indirectly works. Definitely. Like, like but And I mean, kids also will let you know if you're getting it wrong. Yeah. So they'll have an image of what, you know, that interaction looks like. And, you know, if you make that dinosaur too friendly or or respond not in quite the right way, they'll then correct you. And so they'll kind of construct their own representation of it. It's quite yeah. interesting, yeah. But then it, and then I imagine you set up the rules of that interaction yeah. and then you disrupt it. Yeah. You disrupt the rules or you push the rules of that set-up interaction yeah. and you role-play how that can be disrupted yeah. and, and show them that that's a safe thing to do yeah. or where it's safe or where it's not. And sometimes it goes beautifully and then other times, depending on what the dynamic is and what the cause yeah. of the issue is yeah. um, and what day it is, sometimes that will go fine. And then other times it kind of disrupts things too much yeah. and you have to then repair it and bring it back and find a kind of middle ground. So it's yeah. quite experimental. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think that that relates to doing traditional cognitive therapy yeah. with adults in that you know, uh, someone might have a thought uh, or a set of behavior, like a, like a worry thought, and you might answer it in a particular kind of way that's a bit odd or a bit kooky or a bit mm. different or just in a different way. And sometimes that really hits the nail on the head. Yeah. Or, uh, or an odd and kooky way might kind of breaks them out of it and then kind of gets them to say, well, you know, maybe this is just a way of looking at the world. Yeah. Don't, um, and then that can be quite interesting. Mm. Sometimes I think um, minimal self-disclosure by a... So careful self-disclosure by a therapist in those instances as with an adult yeah. can be quite helpful. I once told a, a client of mine that it, who was feeling a lot of shame and guilt about having done something. And, and I said, oh, well, you know, I got a speeding fine. No, I got a red light fine. Yeah. And... Um, you know, my reaction was, well, I didn't have a crash when I went through the red light, so I should be getting money, not, <laughs> you know, and I was being funny about it, yeah. but it, it helped to um, stir it up a bit, to stir it up a bit. Yeah. So, so back to what I was talking about. So they kind of talk about the balance of striving for change is important, but the balance of trying to strive for change, but also creating the trust and the space for creative play mm -hmm. as, as a difficult balance yeah. because you don't want to be doing just allowing play to be going on forever because you might actually just be contributing to their avoidance of yeah. a problem but you don't want to be pushing for it because if you push for it too hard then for exposure then you encounter all the problems that you didn't want to encounter yeah 
So the, I imagine that's a difficult balance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and they talk about also that the also there is a need for avoidance to to respect avoidance mm-hmm. like that children will will need that avoidance yeah. at times to be in control and you know particularly in the early stages of therapy stuff and even in the cancer realm we talk about the importance of um, respecting denial yeah and how important that is yeah uh, as a, as a if you don't want to rip that away because mm. that can actually be incredibly painful will yeah. be much more wor- much worse for that person. Uh, so this is just sort of rounded out. They talk about some rules of thumb when working with children as a sort of as in the wrapping up the article to use play. Um, you know, if a, if a child's presenting as frozen, a lot of anxiety um, or extremely resisting exposure, if a child is overly attempting to please, too obedient or or emotionally detached, then when you're doing exposure work, then doing play might be a good good thing to do yeah like to kind of break it up as we're talking about now and if play is the main approach then the question again is like what we're talking about before is like the question to shift from non-directive to directive and how you go about doing that Hmm. and 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 sort of as a final note they talk about cautioning to create an atmosphere that like the playful atmosphere that the child experiences empathetic so not to accidentally or otherwise create an environment where you're ridiculing someone's yeah, pain definitely or downplaying it yeah you know you don't you don't want it. so if someone presents you in pain you don't want to just go let's play yeah that's 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 sort of what they're advocating not to do yeah tricky balance tricky balance hmm. so yeah just do that amy okay cool <laughs> easy <laughs> so amy what's the article you want to talk about Okay, so the article I found is called The Impact of Brief Parental Anxiety Management on Child Anxiety Treatment Outcomes, a Controlled Trial by Hudson and colleagues in the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology uh, a few years ago in 2014. So the premise they started with was that parental anxiety has been found to be associated with poorer treatment outcomes for children with anxiety. And so they aim to evaluate the effects of supplementing a standard family CBT treatment for children with anxiety with a brief parental anxiety management component. The idea being help parents reduce their anxiety should help the kids as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So they had 209 children aged between 6 and 13 years and their parents. Uh, All the children were seeking treatment for their anxiety and the children needed to meet the criteria of a principal diagnosis of a dsm 4 anxiety disorder. So they could have other things going on as well, but anxiety needed to be the core, the, the most troubling symptom yep. that they had. Parents who took part in the study who also had a psychological disorder were asked to delay their treatment until after the study. So the idea was that the only treatment that the family unit was receiving was the one in study. Yeah. So the measures that they used for children, they had the anxiety disorder interview schedule for children, both the child and parent versions. Uh, so it's a structured, sort of semi-structured interview. Mm-hmm. They also had the Spence Children's Anxiety Scale for both mother and child reported anxiety symptoms. And then for the parents, they had the ADIS for diagnostic interview for assessing anxiety and other diagnoses in both of the parents. Yeah. And then the DAS-21, so the Depression, Anxiety, Stress Scale, yeah. to look at 
symptom severity. So they then split the children and their parents up into groups. Half of the sample were put into a CBT group, which was based on the Cool Kids program, which is a manualized CBT group treatment Mm -hmm. for children and their parents. So it sort of evenly splits time spent just with children, just with their parents, and then with both together. Uh, It's conducted over 10 weeks for two hours each each turn and it incorporates a whole bunch of traditional CBT strategies so things like psychoeducation, cognitive restructuring, gradual exposure, uh, assertiveness training and then some sort of child management skills for the parents to use in helping manage their children's behaviour. Which is is really really important I think if you're an anxious parent or you're a parent who's currently anxious uh, to learn how to be assertive to your child and learn that that's okay. Mm. Um, you know, it gets back to the attachment stuff that we talked about. Yeah, setting those appropriate boundaries. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, you know, it's not enough just to love your child. You also need to uh, set some firm limits. Yeah. And uh, assertiveness training is, is a really, it's such a great thing for yeah. people to learn how to do. Really helpful. Uh, so all of the Cool Kids program focused on the children's anxiety and so there wasn't any discussion of any of the parents' symptoms yep. in that program. And the group was between five and seven children in each group plus their parents. And the children were age-matched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other group was what they called the BPAM group, the Brief Parental Anxiety Management Group. <laughs> so this group also did the Cool Kids program in the same way as the other group, but then also they added five 45-minute sessions that focused on these this parent anxiety management. Yeah. Yeah. And so they compared the two to see... Which, yeah. So the parent anxiety stuff had um, a range of resources for them to take home, some practical strategies and some exposure that they could do at home themselves, yeah. and then used pretty similar kind of strategies of sort of CBT stuff around, you know understanding thoughts, changing thoughts, that sort of thing, plus psychoeducation, more assertiveness training, problem solving, that kind of thing. Uh, And so the idea was that they would teach the parents how to manage their own anxiety using CBT. Mm. Yeah. So for the analysis, they compared the two groups and they also compared anxious to non-anxious parents. So evenly distributed between each one of the treatment groups, there was a mixture of anxious Anxious and non-anxious parents. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, essentially, you ended up with four four groups of yeah, data. Yeah. Anxious, not anxious. Um, CBT, yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, at the end of treatment, they found that there were no differences between uh, the remission rates of the children's anxiety disorders between the two groups. Mm-hmm. Ended up with pretty close results. So, that, so remission meaning that... Symptoms had resolved. resolved. Yeah, or yeah. improved and the same amount. Both Between groups, were, both groups. There was no real difference. Yeah, so both groups, their rates of diagnoses and of symptoms dropped, but they weren't significantly different from one another between those parents who had received the extra training and those hadn't. Yeah. So significantly more children in the non-anxious parent cohort yep. compared to the anxious parent cohort no longer met the criteria for an anxiety disorder yep. at the end of either treatment. Yep. And then that held for six months post, post-treatment. post Yeah, so the children without anxious parents fared better mental health-wise and had 
more striking results than those with anxious parents. Uh, there were no differences in the parents' diagnoses post-treatment. Yeah. However, all of the anxiety symptoms for both parents and children significantly improved post-treatment and then again at six months follow-up. So there was some change, yeah. but for the parents it wasn't enough to be clinically significant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd expect that from five... 45-minute. Yeah. So the way that they interpreted these results was that even though there'd been a reduction in anxiety symptoms for the parents, the reason why there was no difference between the two treatment groups was that it wasn't a significant enough reduction in anxiety to actually influence things for the children. Right. Yeah. So they're still claiming their theory is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the results inside. Yeah. But I mean that would make sense. Like, so like if you if the intervention for the parents is no it doesn't result in a meaningful hmm. diagnostic change in their anxiety. Yeah. Then would you necessarily see a change in the kids' anxiety? No. So essentially, yeah, the kids are receiving the same treatment. Yeah. Either way. So that sort of matches the other research in this area. I looked at a couple of articles that had similar kind of comparisons because it seems really logical that that would be something that would be helpful. But essentially all of the studies have run into the same kind of barrier that they've tried to do a quick intervention with the parents and then have found no results. So most of them conclude with the same thing, which is you need some research where you're actually providing more detailed treatment to the parents mm. to see whether it actually does have an effect. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you also wonder whether maybe a family-based intervention, like yeah. so, it's, so rather than child gets therapy, adult gets therapy. More of a systemic family approach. Yeah, systemic family therapy yeah. approach uh, would be better. I would say so because it's then looking at the dynamic in the family and how each of the members of the family kind of influence one another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and as a clinician, I always wonder about the utility of like a manualized treatment. Yeah. And how effective they really are. Absolutely. So one of the reasons that cognitive behavioral therapy is really widely used and promoted is that you can manualize it, mm. right? So it's this idea of, you know, in session one, you do this, in session two, you do this, in session three, you do this. You follow the procedure, they've done studies, it shows that there's results, mm. right? The clinical reality of using something like that you very rarely, I've very rarely come across other clinicians who do that. I certainly and don't. I, I certainly yeah. don't. And usually like what you're actually trying to do is understand how those manualized treatments work. But then when you get someone in therapy is your formulation, your development and understanding their problems is much, is, is much richer than yeah. going, okay, you've got anxiety. So we're going to do five sessions on this. Exactly. Um, and I mean, it's that, it comes back to that problem that humans don't fit into neat boxes. And when when we do research, we tend to screen out, uh, you know, people who have more complicated yeah. issues or other things that might interfere with, with treatment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I'm never quite sure where I come down on it because I do wonder whether clinicians, we talk ourselves up. Hmm. In in like oh well I really I know I take this holistic approach yeah and you know, and I really understand about this stuff whereas like I do actually wonder whether some where there's been cases where I've worked with or I've seen other people work with where if they just actually like, like we're gonna do 
if you've got someone who's motivated yeah. and on board with doing a six session. And has the sort of capacity and resources to be able to do to that. To do that, then I wonder whether they would actually benefit from it. So, And, then, yeah. and there is, there's lots of studies where people do a structured program and they get good results. Exactly. I'm just, I'm never convinced that they necessarily do better than, well, it depends on the treatment problem. Mm. So, yes, I feel the same way. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, that's that's a whole podcast, yeah. like a whole like multiple discussions, really, Absolutely. right there. Which, in a way, was why I chose this article because it's not the way I work. So it was kind of going, oh, this is something different. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly far more structured and uses a different method than what I would use. So I was mm. curious. I mean, it's interesting, like the. The theory of it is quite appealing, which yeah. is treat the parent's anxiety. Yeah. That's going to, that, that sh- should help the child. And often, I mean, from my own work, often I end up referring one of the parents to see someone, um, see a psychologist, if I can tell that in the dynamic there's stuff going on or that the parent's issues are coming into the therapy with the children. And that's certainly being beneficial because often, um, there's a whole bunch of issues sort of playing off off one another. But I wonder whether it has to be more like that, where it's them getting their own treatment that's designed to fit their problems rather than kind of as an adjunct to mm. their kids' therapy. But also, like, I, I, I think just having a child in therapy, I think, can be distressing. Absolutely, yeah. I, I will never forget, I was doing my clinical training and it was working and I was just doing observational, period of observational placement at an eating disorders unit Mm. and I was walking back into the unit and I saw this mother who just dropped off her who dropped off her daughter during Mm -hmm. the day because her daughter was anorexic and she closed the door and she just started crying yeah yeah. and and because she was finally alone yeah and and then like sort of I bad timing i guess yeah but i saw her and i said are you okay and she just like looked at me kept crying and just walked off yeah and you know i think that having a that there is a real stress for parents to having having a a psychologically unwell child or a child that's not behaving well and Comes um, with a whole lot of sense of responsibility and guilt and yeah, thinking there's something so else they guilt. could have done. Or, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, people are afraid to seek out psychological help because yeah. they do feel like they've failed. And when, you know, if your car broke down, you go and just take it to a mechanic. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't feel like you failed. I mean, you might, or you might go, oh, I probably should have put more oil in it or something, but you would still go and do that. Whereas I think, there's other processes involved uh, as a as an adult, yeah, and that kind of stuff. But I think you know, and and I think taking a view of like, oh, I'm anxious and I've made my child anxious just leads to can, can lead to yeah, guilt. It's not helpful, and <laughs> and it also may not be correct. Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, really, nothing in psychology comes from one direct cause. Everything's sort of multifaceted. There's a whole bunch of different things going on for most disorders. What about trauma? Hmm. There's more of a key. <laughs> what about anxiety following the cancer diagnosis? <laughs> well, you can have a triggering event, what but about, still have a whole what, bunch what of... What about grief? <laughs> you can Someone tr- dies. <laughs> Shut up. You can, you, well, no, you can have a triggering event or a 
a key focus of what's going on, but it's that old, you know, bucket analogy that there's a whole bunch of different things that have gone gone in to get you to the point where yeah. you're that level of distress. Well, but also like, you know, you, like I, I said, I think previously, like you can have 10 people who get diagnosed with some yeah. cancer, but, you know, you can get a complete variation in psychological response based on current circumstance and past, exactly. past history. So, yeah. yeah, it's quite complicated. Yeah. All right, shall we take a break? Let's take a break and we'll come back. Thanks for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, we'll be rambling on for a little bit longer. In the meantime, if you like us, give us a, I don't know, whatever you call it on iTunes. The, the thumbs up, stars. I think it's a rating. A rating, a shower of gold coins. No, that's more like Mario. One of those things. Uh, or send us an email or visit our website, twoshrinkspod.com. Emails to shrinkspod at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions about the things you'd like to hear on the show mm. or criticism leave the positive comments for like like an online rating thing on iTunes yeah somewhere public yeah yeah, yeah. send us hate mail in private that's it yeah yeah and if you do like the show we are interested in getting more listeners and so please tell someone about it and that's the way that this show more people will know about it and then we can do this for longer because we really enjoy doing it and then it means that i don't have to resort to trying to train pigeons to drop little pamphlets all over the city (laughs) (laughs) that is a very very disturbing mental image thank you and we're back so in this last bit of our show we like to have a chat about interesting things we've come across this week doesn't have to be psych related just something that our respective eyes. So the article I've come across is uh, Modesty Doesn't Become Me. Narcissism and the Big Five Among Male and Female Candidates for the Big Brother TV Show. <laughs> so a little, extending a little bit on from last week's pod, which is on uh, the Dark Triad, mm-hmm. which is like narcissism and stuff like that. This is an Israeli study. It's GD Rubenstein. It's from the Journal of Individual Differences 2016. Not the Journal of Personality <laughs> Individual Differences. Branching out. Branching out. We like to expand out a little bit. Long story short, they got a sample of candidates, people who are applying to be on Big Brother mm-hmm. and gave them personality questionnaires. Yeah. And they also gave the same set of questionnaires in an envelope to them and said, can you get someone else? To fill this out. Okay. And so the control sample. Yeah. Essentially. So the they talk about Big Brother reality TV show and what it sort of embodies. Whilst other reality TV shows re- require specific talents like MasterChef or The Voice, one's attractiveness in the eyes of producers and a strong ambition to be a celebrity without any special talent are sufficient for participation in the show in, of Big Brother. Although reality TV shows constitute an ever-increasing volume of TV repertoires part of narcissistic culture, individuals who are willing to exhibit the most private aspects of their life to the public seem to have personality traits that distinguish them from individuals who yeah. have an appropriate sense of boundaries. <laughs> the long and short of it, they said that the candidates who were wanting to be part of Big Brother were significantly less agreeable and less neurotic but more extroverted, conscientious, and narcissistic than non-candidates. So that kind of makes sense. I mean, hmm. it's, it's not particularly surprising, but it's nice to... Confirm your beliefs. Yeah, well, that's it. Hmm. Like, you know, this is kind of... I, 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 although I was a bit surprised about neurotic. I was a bit surprised about conscientious. Why, why conscientious? 
I don't know, it's just never a word I've used to describe a big brother. They were less conscientious? No, they were more. No, more conscientious. Yeah. Hmm. See, I would have thought, I would have said like more neurotic. Hmm. Like a lot of emotions. Yeah. So many emotions. Yeah. But is that not neurosis? Hmm, maybe they're not insecure about those emotions. Just expressing the emotions? Hmm. Yeah. High expressed emotion rather than twitchy about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, well, I suppose neurotic could be just, you know, like, oh, neurotic, and yeah. sitting right in the corner. Yeah. It's like, it's like um, high expressed emotions. Like something, something's happened. Oh my God. <laughs> Something good's happened. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's um, nice. Yeah, so that was kind of interesting. The The other kind of interesting element that I thought was because it was an Israeli study, mm. they stratified the sample by religious orthodoxy. Wow. So, um, which you would never do in Australia. No. So. You just wouldn't have the, the numbers or the. You know, you would never sort of stratify like a sample by like how uh, strict a Catholic someone is. No. Something like that. So, I mean, in Australia, I think it's like 25%. Of the Australian population identifies no religion. So, yeah, so they stratified the sample as secular, traditional, orthodox, ultra orthodox. Hmm. So, so it was quite interesting. And then I think that actually had some relationship to to personality. Hmm. Okay, so you know I love Spider Man, right? I did not know you love Spider Man. Love Spider Man. I have always wondered. Well, actually, no, I haven't. But I was thinking today about Spider-Man, and so I did some Googling, and I found an article called Towards a Spider-Man Suit, Large Invisible Cables and Self-Cleaning Releasable Super Adhesive Materials. So I've got a physics article. You've got a physics article. <laughs> yep. Well, I suppose I did, I did do an ergonomics article in the first pod. Exactly. We need to each have a go. Dabbling outside our field of expertise and realise... I, I did. I did dabble outside my expertise. I talked about child psychology. That's true. Yeah. I, mean, I do appreciate that. That was hard. Yeah. So, this is by Nicola. I'm not I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I talked about psychodynamic theory. <laughs> like one sentence. <laughs> Calm down. Exposure, exposure. Good. Yeah. So, this article is by Nicola Pugno in the Journal of Physics Condensed Matter in 2007. And she proposed mechanisms for developing Spider-Man's suit. Right. Mm. Yes. Pray tell. So, you need gecko-like gloves and boots. What, uh, what is it? To, and to so, stick on things? Yes. Yep. So, apparently they have hierarchical miniaturized hairs. Mm-hmm. Which help with their stickiness. You need large invisible cables. You need nano hooks that use Velcro mechanics. And you need a whole bunch of mechanisms of contact and release of adhesion. And what I've written next to that is maths! Exclamation mark. Because there are a lot of sums explaining how this is possible. Wow. Yep. So her calculations indicate that a man. <laughs> Take this seriously. No, I, I just, I just love the fact that, like, you know, maths is this thing, like a tool that I use sparingly. Mm. Now I'm an adult, and you know, but like, there's someone, a whole world. There's a whole world, and I, I love the fact that someone could go, All right, we've got a problem, and we can apply maths to it. Yeah, um, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm impressed. It's, it is impressive. Yeah, and there was some pretty fancy pants maths in this. At least. <laughs> yeah. So, she calculated that um, a man with gecko gloves 
could support a mass of 1,160 kilograms or with spider material gloves, which she went into as well, 480 kilograms. So she concluded that Spider-Man suits could become feasible in the near future. Was there any kind of like future directions about like development of lightsabers? No, that's that's a different universe. This is purely man on wall kind of, you know, climbing well, stuff. I guess I'm talking about a galaxy. Yeah. Long, long ago, far, yeah. far away. Yeah. Just to, you know, give a little little taste of the article. Uh, she said that we have proposed new laws to design futuristic self-cleaning, super adhesive and releasable hierarchical smart tissues, as well as large invisible cables based on carbon nanotube technology. The analysis thus represents a first step towards the feasibility of a Spider-Man suit. Does it, does it specify that it has to be red and blue? Uh, no, but there were some really colourful pictures. There was colour? Yeah. God, I'm reading the wrong articles. I know, it's just luxury in the physics realm. <laughs> so there you go. Spider-Man could be, you know, the thing of the future. But on the luxury in the physics realm, mm. like the amount of dollars that is allocated to psychological research. Piddly. Is, is piddly. Now, some people might say, oh, well, you know, you've got these academics and they do this research, yada, yada, yada. I think there's like NASA is currently or some multi-space agency program where they're going to put three satellites in space, mm-hmm. right? And then have them uh, have like laser beams uh, connected, like pointing to each one. And then what they will do is that when there's like a disruption in space time or, or mm. grab, no. Doctor it, Who. No, it's, 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 it's so that they can detect whether there's a gravity, a bump of gravity mm. in the universe from two black holes colliding. Yeah. Right. Now, they've detected this using instruments on Earth. Okay. Right. But they want to... Whack them in space. Whack them in space because it'd be more accurate. So, basically, they're using sound to detect something in astronomy. Now... That co- that's going to cost millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It's like, do you reckon I could get like, you know, a thousand dollars to buy some questionnaires? No. And and like recruit some people to study. It's too much. And then and then God forbid, um, fund me to <laughs> go to a conference overseas. No. 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 That's not okay. Perfect place to end the podcast. Perfect place to end the podcast. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. See you next time.